Exodus chapter 20. This is our fourth and final week of introduction to the Ten Commandments. And next week, we will begin looking at the actual text of the commandments, or at least to the preface of the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord thy God. Let's read the Ten Commandments tonight, and then we will talk about moral categories versus psychological categories. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your manservant, nor your maidservant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, You speak with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, your law is good. Help us to use it lawfully. Help us to understand what these commandments mean as we look at them one by one in the coming weeks. But more than that, help us to obey them. Father, we pray that you would help us to get our thinking right as we think about how the law of God applies to us and specifically how it applies to our understanding of ourself and our relationships to other people. Give us the grace to flush away the wrong views that our culture inculcates in us and help us to understand what your word has to say to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. 
asking for help and strength to understand and listen and help me to speak. In his name, amen. This sermon is something of a topical sermon. We're not going to talk about any one of the Ten Commandments. Instead, we're going to talk about psychology and morality, or specifically, why God tells us to make our decisions based on moral categories rather than psychological categories. Those of you who have had the misfortune to spend a certain amount of time on social media within any time in the last 10 years have seen lots and lots of psychological categories come floating across your screen. Psychological categories are things like self-care, abuse, expectations, emotional needs, All of these refer to categories taught by the discipline of psychology. Now, there's nothing wrong with psychology if it's used rightly. Psychology is the discipline that seeks to understand and clarify human action and motivation on the individual level. Discipline that seeks to understand and clarify human action and motivation on the individual level, and thus it's opposed to anthropology, which seeks to understand and clarify human action and motivation on the societal level. We're not talking about the societal level, we're talking about this cultural understanding of the discipline of psychology that tells you things like, you are an introvert. Therefore, moral application, you must go and find time to recharge yourself. Or, getting along in marriage is about expectations. Therefore, you must manage your expectations in order to not be disappointed and feed resentment against your spouse. Well, that advice is fine advice. But the minute psychology gets itself into the driver's seat of the Christian life is the moment that the Christian goes off the track laid out here in the law of God and starts off-roading it through some, well, thorny, prickly terrain with lots of cliffs and pitfalls and places where your four-wheel drive buggy, your life, is going to get bogged down or damaged or destroyed by bad choices, driven by psychological categories in the driver's seat for making decisions. Right? If you say, my duties in marriage are about expectations, then you have taken the biblical categories of love and obedience, or love and respect, and you have replaced those categories with a different category, the category of expectations. Now those two, their three categories, overlap to a certain extent. But insofar as we depart from God's moral categories, we lose our way. God's law is our rule for living. Remember we talked about that over the last couple of weeks. It is the covenant. It is the summary of who God is and what he wants from us. And what he wants from us is not to use our best judgment to develop the discipline of psychology that will then guide our lives. 
He wants us to study. He wants us to learn psychology. Absolutely. But he doesn't want it to replace morality. The question should always be, what is the right thing to do? And the answer to that question is always found by moral reasoning, starting from these Ten Commandments and the other commands of God in his word. So as you can see, the outline tonight is quite long. We're going to look just briefly at each of these things. I've arranged it in first. We'll present some specific things that you have probably heard, that I've certainly heard from a psychological point of view. Various psychological categories, about a dozen of them, that are in the water in our culture. And then we're going to look again briefly at the Christian response. What sorts of biblical categories, what sort of biblical understanding needs to replace those psychological understandings in our mind? So we go to the commandments of psychology, understood this way, I would say that the first principle of pop psychology, as many of our neighbors and even many of us understand it, is maximize yourself. That is, the most dangerous thing you can do is hide who you truly are. Don't try to be someone else. Be yourself. That is necessary. In fact, the biggest thing you can do wrong in this world, so a lot of people believe, so a lot of movies and songs tell us, is to stop being yourself or fake it, to be somebody else. That doesn't work. Plus, it's wrong. You have to maximize yourself. Don't try to hide the real you. Be the real you. And so, psychology's first commandment, if we want to translate it into biblical language of the first commandment, the greatest commandment, becomes look out for number one. If you don't care for yourself, if you don't value yourself, if you don't practice self-esteem, nobody else will do it for you. The problems in your life are probably rooted, so psycho- pop psychology tells us, probably rooted in a failure to care about and love yourself enough. You think negative thoughts, you engage in negative self-talk, and next thing you know, you're doing negative things and getting negative outcomes. So, our culture has taken this to the idea that whatever is inside of you must come out. You must actualize those internal desires. And how do you express yourself? Well, if you're an artist, you express yourself in your art. If you're a musician, you express yourself in your music. If you're not an artist or a musician, if you're like most of us, don't have a lot of skills in those areas, you express yourself through your grooming, your personal style, your clothing choices, the relationships you pursue, and so on. The apotheosis of this is sexual orientation. This shows who I really am, who I'm attracted to. So individual expressivism, looking out for number one, the choices I make, the way I live, the entertainment I consume, the products I buy, is all based on my understanding that this is the real me. I wear 
Wrangler cowboy cut jeans. My hip-hop neighbor wears Echo Unlimited. And on and on it goes down the street and we do our lawns and we do our hair and we do our sweatshirts in different ways to reflect who we really are. So this, you know, the psychological arm of it, the propaganda arm tells us you've got to make your decisions based on who you really are. And how is all this funded? Well, this dovetails neatly with the ideology of consumerism and the notion that you are what you buy. And thus, advertising and various corporations try to associate their products with various lifestyles, different forms of what you would aspire to be. The cool person in that poster is wearing a certain kind, certain shape of glasses frames. I will buy those glasses frames and I will be cool like that cool person. That will express my style too. Now, uh, world's most valuable listed company, perhaps most valuable company period, uh, Apple Incorporated, briefly passed $3 trillion in market cap two weeks ago. Apple, it would seem, has mastered the art of selling not just products, but a vision of self-expression. I'm the cool person who has the Apple Watch on my wrist and the AirPod in my ear and the iPhone in my hand, and that expresses who I am. And so a company that has mastered the art of catering to individual expressivism becomes the world's largest, most profitable, most powerful company. Thus saith psychology, and it fits very nicely with the almighty dollar, and so individual expressivism and its twin, consumerism, feed then the idea of self-actualization. The pop psychology idea that latent within each individual is a whole identity, a complete package of desires, dreams, goals, pursuits. All you have to do, you're like the dragonfly. You're born, you come out of the egg, come out of your chrysalis, whatever it is, you pop it open, you unfold your wings in the sun, right? you let that package out, and they harden up, and you can speed away. In a very crude form of the nature-nurture debate, self-actualization says goes all in for nature. It's not nurture. You can raise the kid to be a wholesome farmer with thick boots and mud on his boots. And if he doesn't like that, he's going to grow up and be the kind of guy who wears tight mini shorts because that was what was inside the whole time. Self-actualization. Hence the practice, educationally, of relentlessly asking kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to do? What do you want to learn? What do you want to listen to? What books do you want to read? What films do you want to watch? Rather than saying, here's the books you should read. Here's what you should listen to. Here's the things you should aspire to. Well, that runs counter to self-actualization. And so pop psychology tells us, no, let the child self-direct. He'll tell you who he really is. He'll tell you if he's even a he. This also takes form then in self-care. 
the idea that you need to take time away from the fray. You got to get out. You got to rest. You got to get away from the negative voices. Same thing with authenticity. What's most important is that you show who the real you is. And if the world doesn't like it, it's their loss. They're the ones at fault. If they tell you to stop dressing that way, stop talking that way, and show up for work on time or whatever it is, if they don't understand your personal style and who you really are, so much the worse for them. They are trying to squash your individuality and you have to get out of that toxic environment. So if we had to have a motto for psychology's commands, we would say, like Polonius in William Shakespeare's Hamlet, this above all, to thine own self be true. It's not clear what Polonius was even talking about when he said that. But if you understand the quote to mean, do what you feel like, not what society tells you, not what some authority figure tells you, but what the real you wants to do, well, to thine own self be true. So where does this come out? Well, it comes out in half a dozen things that I've identified. You could probably pull out half a dozen others like this that you have heard, that you have seen come across your social media feed. One big example is the notion of getting toxic people out of your life. So-and-so is toxic. They're a drag on you. And again, the para- what is the paradigm? Toxic versus non-toxic or supportive versus unsupportive, uh, affirming versus rejecting. I found some website, psychreg.com, this definition. Toxic people make you feel lots of negative emotions such as guilt, shame, and shame. Your feelings are invalidated, confused, disrespected, frustrated, and exhausted. If you come across somebody like that, get rid of them. You don't need that. Thus saith psychology. And it also says, stop putting up with abuse. You live with a narcissist, put him out at the curb for the trash truck to take away. You don't need that in your life. Many, much decision-making is driven by this understanding, this idea that some people are abusive, abusers, and need to go. Now, again, the fact that it's a psychological category doesn't mean that it's all wrong. That's not what I'm trying to say saying that these categories are inadequate. The paradigm of toxic versus non-toxic, abuser versus supporter. It doesn't map precisely onto any moral categories in the word of God. Same with this third one, don't other or shame people. If you treat anybody as not up to snuff or say, This person is not welcome in my life because of their views, because of their attitude, because of their immoral actions. Well, you're you're othering them, making them feel excluded or ashamed. Now, never mind that this is in direct contradiction to number one and number two. This is also a command of psychology at times. Then there's the slogan, the personal is the political, this idea again abroad in our culture, that my feelings are properly the subject of state intervention. If I am oppressed, 
or the subject of aggression, or if somebody is hurting my self-esteem, then the state should have a law against that. Should make that something we call a hate crime. That's, again, that's a direct uh, deduction from the idea of psychology and individual expressivism and the idea that who I am has to come out and I need to show that. And if somebody opposes that or tells me I shouldn't be that way, then they are evil and they're harming my development. Another implication of psychology, slavery is the greatest of evils. You can't find an evil worse than slavery because slavery interrupts individual expressivism and self-actualization. To be bossed by a slave owner prohibits me from developing my personal style and showing who I truly am. Now again, this doesn't mean that slavery is good, that abuse is good, that being toxic is good. The point is to say these paradigms are inadequate for biblical decision-making. Paul doesn't tell us, if you're a slave, you must run away to avoid participating in the evil system of slavery. He never says that. Instead, he says, if, it's a, if you're a slave, it's possible to love your master within that system. If you're a slave owner, it's possible by obeying Jesus to love your slaves. He talks about that in detail. We've talked about that in the past in Ephesians 6. Anyway, final slogan, love is love. Whatever you want to do, whoever you want to do it with, as long as it's motivated by what you consider to be love based on your current feelings, go for it. Don't deny your love, and certainly don't deny other people's love, because that prohibits their self-expression. A whirlwind tour through a bunch of things that you probably heard in various contexts. How do the Ten Commandments relate to these things? Again, this sermon is not primarily to tell you, I think you all are making decisions driven by psychology. The point of this sermon is to help you say, oh, it's okay to take the psychologically based advice that I hear and subject it to a biblical critique based on, wait a second, what does the law of God say? If we talk about the broad principle of the law of God, turn over with me to Romans 13. The broad principle here is not love is love, but the much narrower, the more focused reality that law is love. Paul says this at the end of Romans 13, in the middle of Romans 13, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For all the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. How do you keep the law of God? Or how do you love your neighbor? You do it by keeping God's law. Don't kill him. Don't steal from him. Don't take his wife. Don't envy his stuff. Don't lie to him. 
And if you haven't done those things, you have loved your neighbor. You have kept the law. That is, the command is not maximize yourself. Make sure that you are able to show your personal style and be who you really are. Paul doesn't say that's the Christian's number one priority. Rather, or at least your number two priority, love your neighbor as yourself. How do you do that? Well, love is the fulfilling of the law. That is, the fulfilling of the law, if you turn it around, is love. Love is defined by certain specific measurable actions. Did you lie to your neighbor this week? Did you steal from your neighbor this week? Did you take your neighbor's wife this week? Did you covet your neighbor's stuff this week? Rather than how warm and fuzzy did you feel about your neighbor this week? How well did you help your neighbor actualize himself and his goals and desires this week? That is not the question. So the first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus tells that to the rich young ruler or to the scribe who asks him rather. And that is how, that is the Christian's overarching goal. Love God, love your neighbor. How do you do that? Not by processing things through psychological categories, but by processing them through moral categories. That's how you demonstrate love and love is your top priority. So to respond to the things we listed above, what do you exist to do? Not to express yourself, but to express God's glory. And yes, you do that as yourself. God didn't create me to express God's glory the way Johann Sebastian Bach did it. And if I spend my life saying, I'm not Bach, I'm a failure, I've missed the point. Yes, you do have to be yourself. Psychology is right about that. But the goal of the reason you have to be yourself is because God made you. And he said, here you are. Submit to me as yourself. Glorify me as yourself. Express the glory and wonder of Jesus Christ. So it's fine to say, I like quirky clothing. Or, as most of us do, I like neutral clothing that fits very comfortably within the average ordinary clothing worn by people of my age and sex in the place where I live. But the point is not that you're expressing yourself. The goal is to bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first commandment. Love God. And that means that the point of your existence is to glorify Christ. Not to actualize yourself. You see, psychology, as it's frequently understood, misses the whole distinction that we saw in Romans 7 between the mind that loves the law of God and the flesh that loves the law of sin and two contrary opposing principles at work in the heart of the human being. And it instead says humanity is basically good 
whatever this human wants must be basically good. Therefore, he ought to go for it. The Bible says what you want is basically flawed in a very important sense. And it's also basically good in another very important sense. God made you good and the creational design is still there and it's still good. It's also corrupt and very bad. And both of those things are present at one and the same time in one and the same person. So what do we do? We don't say whatever I want and whatever God wants must be one and the same thing. God will bring those two things together into the same thing in heaven. But for now, to redefine our desires as moral commands, my desire tells me that I must do this. Therefore, I must. I have a moral obligation to fulfill my desires. No, you don't. You have a moral obligation to glorify God. And therefore, similarly, you and I don't exist to enjoy ourselves, but to enjoy God. We aren't here to get the maximum amount of pleasure out of the world that we can possibly get. Earlier generations of Christians have tried to show this by deliberately self-denying lives. Entering the monastery or something along those lines. I don't think the Bible recommends that. But they were trying to make the point that I'm not here to enjoy myself. I'm here to enjoy God. And that point is perfectly legitimate. That's why we're here. So you don't care for yourself because you are your own purpose and greatest goal. I'm here for me. I don't stick my neck out for nobody. Rather, I'm here for God and I will stick my neck out to honor him. And I find my greatest joy in doing what pleases him. God is my purpose. God is my greatest goal. I care for him because he cares for me. So the real you, be authentic. Yes, absolutely. But be authentically who you are, which is a needy, dependent, and beloved creature. God made you and you depend on him all the time. That's how the Ten Commandments start. I am the Lord your God who brought you out. And then later in the Fourth Commandment, in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. You're a creature. So the most authentic you is the dependent, beloved creature. To thine own God be true. That's the first commandment. Have no other gods before me. The real you, your true identity, is handcrafted by your creator and therefore comes to you from outside of you. It's a gift to you from your father. Right? If we truly believed that your real identity comes from inside, what would we do? Tell you to grow up to the point where you could choose your own name. No, you get your father's name at birth because it's a way of saying your identity came to you from somebody else. You were born into this world as a child of your human father. You belong in this world. You live in this world with an identity given by your heavenly father. So how do you find your identity? You look to the one who gave it to you. You seek God 
And when you find him, you'll find who you are. Now, specific applications. How do we evaluate relationships? Not by the paradigm of toxic versus non-toxic, but by God's commands. What does God tell me to do? He says, honor father and mothers. He says, husbands, love your wives. He says, wives, respect your husbands. He doesn't say, spend a lot of time filling out worksheets to determine whether your spouse is a narcissist. He doesn't say, try to evaluate your emotions after an encounter with so-and-so. Do you feel empowered, enriched, or drained? If you feel drained, get that person out of your life. You won't find those words in Scripture. Jesus and the apostles and the prophets never encourage us to make relational decisions based on whether somebody makes you feel invalidated, confused, disrespected, frustrated, and exhausted. There is still a right thing and a wrong thing to do in that situation. And the Word of God tells us, do the right thing, which is defined by the Ten Commandments. Same thing with abuse. Abuse is a real thing. It's a genuine category. But it's not the most helpful category. How do you know whether somebody is doing evil that demands that you break up with him, that you divorce him? Well, you look to the word of God rather than to your own subjective level of pain. Abuse, in other words, is defined by God's law. He says, here's what will fly and here's what will not fly. A great example of that, specifically in relation to marriage, is right in the next chapter. We're going to talk about this at length but in a few weeks, but the very first item in Exodus 21, what happens when can you get a divorce? Okay, second item in Exodus 21. Exodus 21, 7. If a man sells his daughter to be a maidservant and she shall not go out, she shall not go out as the men servants do. If she does not please her master who betrothed her to himself, he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has dealt deceitfully with her. If he is betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marriage rights. And if he does not do these three for her, then she shall go out free without paying money. Now that she shall go out free means she can lawfully divorce him. What are the three things that God defines as abuse? Diminishing her food, her clothing, her marital rights. If a man doesn't give those things, That's God's definition of abuse. And he says divorce is legitimate under those circumstances. If a man doesn't give his wife full closets, full cupboards, and full arms, she has the right to say, I'm out of here. Talk about that more in weeks to come. So love your neighbor. What does that mean? Not, it doesn't relate to othering people shaming people, it relates to the commandments. Don't kill him. Don't take his wife. Don't steal from him. Don't lie to him. Don't covet him or his stuff. It's not the state's job to straighten out your family life or your emotional life to protect you from being insulted. It's not. The state doesn't have any business straightening out the family or protecting individuals from psychological distress. Christians can lawfully submit to being enslaved. We talked about that 
the final point, love is defined by the law of God, not by feelings. Your calling in a particular situation is defined by the law of God, not by your feelings. And that's the overall point of the sermon and an important thing to remember in interpreting the Ten Commandments today. Make your decisions on moral categories, not psychological ones. What does God say about this? What do the Ten Commandments require of me in this particular situation? How do I honor? How do I not commit adultery? How do I tell the truth? Because those are the things that are required here. And why do we do all this? Well, ultimately, to please the Lord who made us. He's told us how he wants us to live. He's told us what his holiness looks like. And he's described it in Ten Commandments. So we live out that holiness. We exemplify that holiness. Because God saved us from Egypt and brought us to the mountain to meet with him. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to remember these things. Give us the grace to push back against the idea that self-expression and expectations and other psychological categories can capture the fullness of your revelation when they are not the categories in which you spoke to us. Father, give us the grace to listen to what you have to say to us in moral categories and to apply those moral categories to ourselves and our lives and our relationships because we want to live for you and honor you because you rescued us from the Egypt of bondage to sin and Satan. Help us in weeks to come as we look at each commandment. Give us the grace to not only hear the word, but to do it. We pray these things in the name of your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.